Good morning, Highland. We are wrapping up a series, um, as Jason said. We've got a donkey up here on the stage. Who would like this? Who would like this? Elias? Here you go, buddy. Here you go. There you go. Play with that. We are um, wrapping up a series titled Come and See. Um, This week we'll be looking at uh, a passage in Luke 19. Uh, It is Palm Sunday, uh, and if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn to Luke 19 for me. Um, uh, A title that would be rather fitting if you're taking notes um, is Jesus and His Need. And when I first considered this title, uh, I kind of fought that title a little bit because I was going, man, does Jesus really need anything? I mean, He's the Son of God. Um, But as we explore the passage, we'll see just what that need was. And how in his need that he revealed his approach, his humility, his preparation, his powerful sovereignty, and we'll observe the people's response. And lastly, we'll see Jesus' response to his entry. Uh, As we get to the passage, um, we see that the context here is that Jesus is entering the week before he would be crucified. And will be led to many questions along the way. It is an important week. We see in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew dedicates a fourth of the Gospel to this week. Mark, a third. Luke gives it a fifth. And in the book of John, half of the Gospel is dedicated to this all-important week in the life of Jesus. It would do us good this week to read as much as we can as we draw closer to Easter about this week. Um, How important it must be where 30 of the 89 chapters of the Gospels are about this week alone exclusively. So start tomorrow, six chapters a day, you'll read all of the Gospel accounts by Friday. I urge you to do this. We'll get to experience what happened this week 2,000 years ago. And of course, all of this week leads up to the work of salvation on the cross of Calvary, and it will crescendo with the resurrection. Admittedly, it is hard to not talk about the resurrection this week. That will be next week. Uh, It's a tremendous honor to be able to speak about this very special day in the life of Jesus that precedes this very special week. If you have your Bible, let's go ahead and open up, and we're going to look at Luke 19. We're going to see that Jesus had just told a parable. He, uh, he had met with Zacchaeus. He had healed a blind beggar and so many other things before this. We read, verse 28, After telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus, 
and they threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven! Exclamation point. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. There are a lot of things going on here. By my best count, we have Jesus... 12 disciples, a cult, the owners of the cult, some Pharisees, thousands of followers, and some stones on the side of the road. Why and how did he come riding into Jerusalem on a cult? He didn't need a ride. This wasn't simply a means of transportation. It was only about two miles, so this was not some ancient form of Uber or taxi. He likely had walked this road countless times. It was not a stall tactic. We have no evidence that he was tired. None of the scriptures point to that. And it was a short walk to Jerusalem. It's likely that by the time he sent the disciples to get the colt and bring it back, that he could have already made it to Jerusalem. But that's not what he did. So why and how did he come riding into Jerusalem on a colt? The answer, I believe, is to start this week by carrying out a symbolic action that is full of spiritual meaning. And how he came, his approach, was everything. And also, how he did not come was as relevant as how he did come. Notice, he was not coming in force on that chariot with swords drawn. There was no pomp. Or circumstance. He is coming as a servant king to give his own life for who? His enemies. He came to offer his life and it would not be taken by force. There was no epic battle scene brewing here this day. So, what does his approach indicate? It was a clear and visual conveyance of his humility. We know in his second coming it will be a bit different though. It will be a day of war. We like Revelation Jesus, I think. We like the coming by force. We see in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, a bit of a different tone than what we see in this Luke passage when we read John's account. Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and he wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one would understand except himself, and he wore a robe that was dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on the horses, white horses, from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, 
like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of lords. But as the clock begins to tick on the final week of his life, a week that will end in his resurrection from the cruelest of deaths, we don't see a picture of Jesus that we see in Revelation, do we? We don't see swords drawn. In fact, in a few days, we will see his disciples with swords drawn, not Jesus. They're lopping off ears as he picks them up and puts them back on, effectively telling them to knock it off because they had it all wrong. There are so many contrasts, yet he is the same Jesus in both of these passages. The contrasts are indicators of the very depth of his humility. And when I look at these differences, they become very evident. There are many here, many differences, just a handful of them. He would come on a white horse. Here we see him on a small, young colt. We see him in Revelation waging a war. Here we see him bringing peace. He has eyes like fire. Later we'll see that his eyes are weeping eyes. He has many crowns on. On the cross, he wears a single crown of thorns. He would be followed, he will be followed by armies in heaven. And here in Luke, And in this week that will ensue, we see that his followers will betray him. There he will have a name that no one will understand, and yet on the cross he has a name that was meant to mock, King of the Jews. He wore a robe dipped in blood in uh, in Revelation, but on the cross his clothes would be stripped. A sword would come from his mouth. What a picture. On the cross, a spear would pierce his side. There are many differences. These are the ones that stood out to me. Their approach and his approach were were very different. And it's his approach that matters. Matthew records that this event would fulfill what was written in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph. O people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. They knew in advance he was coming. He is righteous and he is victorious, yet he is humble. Riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. He did not come in majesty or might this day, it was prophesied that he would come the very way that he did hundreds of years prior. He would not come in a chariot, and he didn't come to take the city by force this time. That will come later. I ask, how would you enter the city? How do you enter the city, our city, Asheville? This is not how we would enter the city, is it? It's not how I enter the city. I enter the city with a sharp downshift off of 240. Get out of my way. I got places to go. I got people to see. I got to find a parking space. I'm important. That's how I enter the city. Perhaps it's time we look at Jesus' approach. Not just his 
physical approach, but his humble approach. Many times we ride our chariots, don't we? We ride our chariots of politics. That's on both sides, equally. We ride our chariots of tradition. We ride our chariots of self-righteousness. That's a good one. We also ride our chariots of social justice. Even the good causes we like to ride. I wonder how many people see what you stand for rather than who you stand with. Do more people know you for your stance on the president, guns, or taxes versus your deep love for the church and the one who would die for it? We all have donkeys, or rather, war horses that we ride on. See, I don't need a donkey. Because on a good day, I'm the biggest donkey in the room. I know how that works. I didn't get many amens. Ben? Where's Ben? All right, thank you. Um, Notice he came in slow, and he came in steady. There was no flexing muscles. Notice as he enters the city, he didn't have a name brand, sustainably sourced saddle. The Messiah didn't even have a saddle. He used other people's clothes. He didn't have a wish list, and he didn't need to raise money for a cult, because in the name of the Lord, that will pass any credit check, he borrowed a cult. And when he died, he would also be buried in a borrowed tomb. He didn't have the riches of this world. Are you picking up on his approach? It's done me good this week to see his approach. Especially over the past few weeks of preparation, it's, it's been a painful and exhausting week, if I'm honest. It's caused me to look at my own things. And more importantly, the idolatry of the wish lists that I have in my own life. Do you have those? What about you? Do you come in peace? He does. Or do we come with an antagonistic approach? Does your approach mirror Jesus' approach? Philippians 2, 6 through 8, I was reminded this morning that I used this verse the last time I spoke. It started to make me think, am I just preaching the same thing over and over? I don't know. I hope not. I'm sorry if that's the case. Um, this verse in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Notice, he did not give up his divinity. He just gave up the privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. See, I'm not saying that we need to go home and delete our wish lists. This isn't about lists of things to do. I'm just saying that Jesus didn't even have a saddle. And he didn't die so that you can have one. His approach to this week, two miles out from the cross that he would die on, it was far from posh, and it was not popular, and there was nothing professional about his entrance. We see no earthly promise of prosperity in the very humble beginnings of this week. Neither do we see an earthly promise in the pros- in, of prosperity in the gospel. 
His trip from Bethphage to Jerusalem was on a borrowed colt. See, this wasn't a hipster Jesus just trying to be different. This was a humble Jesus who created the universe, coming on mission to die. And if you're a hipster like me here today, I mean no offense. It's just that Jesus wasn't trying to set an example. He was coming to fulfill his mission. He was going to Jerusalem, and he's getting close. It's, it's about two miles away. It's about as far as from here to the Krispy Kreme out on Patton. And, and if the Lord were here today, we could get up on a parking lot, maybe on a building, maybe get a drone right above the tree lines. I want you to get a picture of just how close he was. That's how far he was. Not far. We would know that his proximity indicates that the time is near. We can even begin to count down the hours before the greatest act of humility that the world would ever see would occur. The hour has come for the Son of Man to make his way to the hill where he would lay down his life. That's what his approach was about. This short trip would be the precursor to the death that would purchase the salvation for all those who believe. And we've seen his approach. It's clear. I want to draw you to the preparation as well. The preparation that was made for the king. Notice he's totally in control. There's nothing random going on. There's nothing rogue. The events, the events of this week were perfectly arranged according to scripture and according to his purpose. He is sovereign in this week. R.C. Sproul has said, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. Everything this week is under the authority of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Why is this preparation so important? It's to convey that beyond the shadow of a doubt, that every occurrence, right down to his very betrayal by Judas, was prescripted by the Father. Jesus will not die because of an out-of-control circumstance, and he does not die as a martyr. He will die because it was planned for him to die for his sheep. Everything here is by divine initiative. He sent two disciples. That's Jesus, totally in control. He begins to open up the future for them. He tells them what they will find. This shows that not only does he know everything, but he controls everything. I love how things are exactly as he said they would be. See, Jesus is not a lucky man. This morning, I was in the hallway ironing my shirt. I was very quiet for some reason this morning, and Drew looks at me and he says, Dad, are you nervous? I said, I don't think so. I'm okay. He said, good, I don't, I don't like a nervous dad. I'm like, wow, I don't like a nervous God. I mean, that really speaks to this. Jesus was not nervous about what was going to happen. He's not a lucky man. Jesus knew exactly where the colt would be tied and exactly what would happen when they began to untie it. When Jesus told them what to say, the Lord needs it, these four words would indicate just how well known he must have been. His miracles, his preaching had gone before. 
There would be no fight for the colt, notice. Neither was it theft. They didn't steal the colt. The owners of the colt asked a natural question. What are you doing with my colt? Why are you untying this thing? They heard the answer that the disciples gave them, and they gave them permission, and they walked away with the colt. Of course they did, right? Because Jesus said it would happen. Why would we be surprised by this? After all, all they needed to say was the Lord needs it, and it would be so. This colt, it was special. It had never been ridden on. And it would carry Jesus into his entrance into the city of Jerusalem. As I read this part of the passage, I see that it was all about his sovereignty. And there's not the slightest chance that this would go a different way. Because Jesus is not a risk taker. It's wonderful that nothing takes him by surprise, isn't it? And that God isn't just making things up in our lives as we go. He takes no chances when it comes to his plans. He's not having to go to plan B or C or D or E like we do. He's not learning about the future as it comes. But with surgical precision, he ordains the future just as it is in this account. And all of this detail is planned and scripted by God, the the disciples, the timing, the geography, the cult, the owners, the untying, the questions, and the answers. All of this is under the sovereignty of Jesus. What if we believed this about the circumstances in our own life? See, this whole week was a setup. All of the things were foretold. We, we learn he would be a stumbling stone of the Jews. He would be hated and rejected by the Jews. The Jews and the Gentiles, they would, they would combine against him. He would be betrayed by a friend. His disciples would forsake him. Even the amount that he would be sold for, 30 pieces of silver, was prescripted. If you're looking for something solid to hold your hat on as proof of the Bible, all of these things were truly foretold. All of this is convincing, and it is crystal clear. We talk a lot about living on mission at Highland. What does it mean to live as sent ones? I love this quote by Piper as he applies directly to his sovereignty and our mission and living sent. It's He says, it's hard to exaggerate how important it is for the mission of the church in reaching the unreached peoples of the world to have a fully biblical vision of the greatness and the sovereignty and the glory of God. Knowing him as he really is, as revealed in the Bible, is the foundation for our mission. Friends, the foundation of living on mission must be built on the sovereignty of God. In a discussion with our REACH group this week, it was so evident that we are a people that are pulled heavily by our jobs, our family, our tasks, and the cultural undercurrents that we live in. I understand all of this. I live it every day. And and aside from the grace of God, I I don't know how I do it. But if we're going to be a people who are truly on mission, our eyes must be fixed on Jesus 
in lockstep, not only with his approach, but with full embrace of his sovereignty. We must understand that the enemy is here to play us. We are easily distractible. So the beginning of living on mission is to have a renewed fervor in our prayer and a passion for his word and an acceptance of his sovereignty. What does scripture say about his sovereignty? In Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, don't forget this, exclamation point. Keep it in mind, exclamation point. Remember this, you guilty ones. Three sentences just to get our attention. Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. It's what we see in this story. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. It's my hope that we would be known as a people, as a church that embraces the notion that God is fully in control and does whatever he wishes. See, Jesus' approach supported his mission. Our approach must support ours. Jesus wasn't taking risks by sending these guys. He wasn't taking risks with the cult's owners. And he, do, and he doesn't take risks with you when it comes to his mission. Everything he plans comes to pass. There's no chance that the mission of God would have failed that day. The very same is true of the events surrounding the cult that were true of the church in Acts 1348, when the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thankful for the Lord for his message, and all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. We see that the very same sovereign power of God in work of the events, of the circumstances in our life, and in the circumstances of the untying of the cult, are true for our own personal rescue and salvation. Jesus gets what he comes for. We see it in the cult, and we see it in our salvation. And as the preparation would play out, finally, we have to look at the people. What were they saying? What were they doing in light of all of these things? The palm branches, they represent a royal tribute. This was their Messiah. He taught, healed, raised Lazarus from the dead. There was a fever pitch in the city. From two miles out, there was a royal parade. Like in a parade, people were likely peering for a glimpse, probably maneuvering to see this king who would be riding a colt. This would be the greatest display of royalty the world has ever seen that day. There's no royal family tribute. There's no celebration. There's no one shining moment. For those college basketball fans, my team lost on Friday. There's no one shining moment that will compare to what happened that day. None have ever been more deserving of praise than Jesus. But I think it's easy for us to miss that they would miss what they missed. There's a lot of misses there. The long-awaited hour had come 
And they are literally paving his path to the cross with palm branches. To the city where he would die for them. So what were they saying? Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. You say, why do you say it like that? Kind of loose. It's because there was a problem. They were looking for something a bit different than what their words indicated. Their words were not necessarily fully indicative of what they were looking for. They were wanting a political kingdom, a financial bailout. Many of them wanted the good old days to come back. They were looking for prosperity. They were looking for what we might look for today in the equivalent of somebody in the Oval Office, chairman of the Federal Reserve, and a five-star general, all kind of wrapped up in one, to put it in our context. They weren't looking for a savior of their soul. But he didn't come for any of those things because those things were not what they needed the most. And friends, they are not what we need the most either. The things that dominate the headlines of today should be of little concern. So I ask, are we the same? Have we changed at all? Whether you live paycheck to paycheck or have enough savings for 10 lifetimes, do you long for the good old days? What did the Pharisees say? They were also there. And we knew that they must have been stirring the pot of self-righteousness. And right on time, like they always do, they say, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he had a reply. If they kept quiet, the stones along the way, or the stones along the road, would burst into cheers. Are you kidding me? The hypocritical, sanctimonious egotism that seemed to just leech out of the Pharisees were telling the Son of God what to do. And his response was no different than his approach. His words are the words of a triumphant king. They're the words of one who can make stones along the side of a road burst into cheers. One sentence would shut him up in that moment. No one but God has the authority to speak these things. Surely he must have been the son of God. Ben, you can come forward. We have to look at his reaction to everything, don't we? That's what this is about. In verses 41 and 42. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. And he concludes his weeping in verse 44, I believe it is, because you did not recognize it when God visited you. As he came closer to the city, he began to weep, not over the fact that he would be crucified on the Roman cross in the most torturous manner known to man, but he wept over their dead, their hollow, empty religion, 
their darkness, their vanity and their twisted identities, the idolatry and the perversion. They had their eyes on so many things, but they couldn't recognize when God visited them. Oh, if we cared about the condition of our hearts and the hearts of others as much as we do for our own success, we wouldn't miss him. What a difference that would make in our mission. They were singing praises much like we do, maybe much like we have this morning, but they did not recognize the Lord. It concerns me that he wasn't recognizable, not because of him, but because of me. Do you recognize him? Do you know that he was weeping in the same way that we would weep? At a funeral. He was weeping because in his eyes they were dead. Spiritual deadness existed. They were far more concerned with the affairs of the world than the affairs of the kingdom. What kind of king weeps at his own triumphant entry? A humble king. A true king. An all-knowing king. A kind, a loving, and merciful king. My favorite is a sovereign king. A king who prepared his own entry for the church that only he can build. No other king is like this king. Let us not be like the crowd. Let us not merely sing. Let us not merely profess. Let us genuinely love him. May we repent. May we be truly receiving of him and incline our will. To his, I beg you, don't miss him. Recognize him this week. He didn't die for the affairs of the state. He died for the affairs of your heart. And he didn't die for your wallet. He died for your soul. They couldn't see that Jesus didn't come to dominate a system. He came to die for your sin. This is our king. And he presents himself as no king has ever presented himself before. The corners of the room will have families with the elements of, that we take in communion. We'll have bread. We'll have juice. We take the bread, we dip it in the juice, and we remember what was accomplished on the cross. We're not remembering what we've done We're remembering what he did for us. We remember that while we were enemies, he was kind, he was good, and he was generous. We'll have some elders and gel leaders on this side. If you need prayer, if you have questions, or if you want to talk about next steps, I'll be over here. Lord, may we not miss you. May we not repeat the same mistakes. God, we need you to be the fire in us that keeps us on mission, Lord. Help us to accept your sovereignty and not fight that, Lord. Lord, we're not little gods. You alone are God. Thank you for this week. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying for those who believe in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.